Good morning. And welcome to the Advent season. I know it's only November 28th, and it seems kind of early to start thinking about Advent and Christmas, but then again, I think the radio stations are already playing a lot of Bing Crosby and Amy Grant and Mariah Carey and other, other Christmas faves. And I know I've got some lights to put up and a tree to put up very soon, so I've been trying to put that off like a lot of you. And uh, just a quick reminder, though, we do have a very special service coming up on December 27th, which is a Wednesday night this year, and that will be our, kind of like what we do for a Christmas Eve service, it's a service of carols and candles. And uh, one of my favorite services of the year, we like to have a lot of music and the arts, if you will, in that service, and so uh, if you and or someone from your family would like to get involved and come up on stage and share some Christmas joy with us uh, during that service, I will tell you that... This is one service for which you definitely do not have to be a professional in order to participate. And so you can come and join the fun time we'll have on the 22nd. Uh, We'll have more instructions for you later. But for now, you can let me know and say, hey, Pastor, I'm thinking that uh, I want to give this a shot. And and, um, we'll we'll, we'll go ahead and set it up so you can be part of of that service on the 22nd, Wednesday night. I think you're also starting to get some information in the email and maybe in the bulletin as well about about the the actual... um, the Sunday before Christmas, we're, we're going to have our um, breakfast during the Sunday school hour. There won't be Sunday school that day, but we're inviting you all in here to have a breakfast on the church. But you do need to sign up so we know how much food to prepare. And so I think that stuff has already go, begun to go out. But please pay attention to that because we really do need you to RSVP so we can get a number. Um, so I get to do Christmas announcements, which is pretty awesome. Uh, but this Advent series, uh, season... I want to do a short series with you, um, just three or four weeks leading up to Christmas, and I really want to look at one big idea, but I want to look at it from a few different angles. And the big idea is, is namely this, that, and this is not going to surprise you probably, but God became a human being. God became one of us. He became one of us. Not specifically that he became a baby. We know that happened, and, and we usually call that the nativity, and that's what we celebrate at Christmas time, but more broadly, I want to talk more broadly with you about the idea that God became a man, that God became a full-fledged, 100% human being. Now, we call that usually the incarnation, and it is probably the most mind-blowing miracle that God has ever done. A lot of other religions, uh, especially some other monotheistic religions like Islam, for instance, that might have a few things in common with Christianity, uh, they, they kind of appreciate a lot of what Christianity teaches because we have some things in common. But when it comes to this idea of God actually becoming a man, not just a God in disguise kind of looking like a man, and not, not just some kind of half-God, half-man, you know, demigod like Hercules or somebody like that. No, an actual full-fledged member of the human race, when it comes to God doing that, that's where, that's where these people will kind of get off the bus and not go any farther with us because it's kind of a crazy idea. And it's very scandalous and a stumbling block to a lot of people. Even the Jews, if you look at the, at the, the, the Gospels and when Jesus came into the world, the, the Jewish people that he was one of and that he came to at that time, they were worshiping the true God, the only God, but they even had an issue with this. They, Jesus, you know, he was talking to them and they kept accusing him. They knew he was a man and they kept saying, you're a man and you're making yourself God. You can't do that. And they accused him of blasphemy. But the other option, that the transformation had gone in the other direction and that this wasn't a man making himself into God but that it was, a, a, that it was God who had actually become man, 
that was perhaps even more of a stumbling block to them. They couldn't really get their minds around that, and so they didn't really seriously seem to consider it. And you almost can't blame them when you think of how amazing the miracle is. I don't think we take enough time to sort of meditate on what God did. Consider for a moment, do a little math here, okay? Consider there are, I have read about 100 billion stars in our galaxy, the Milky Way. That's 100,000, thousand, thousand. And the Hubble telescope and other sources are now hinting at us. The first time I looked this up, I wanted to find out, it said there are probably around 200 billion galaxies. So if the Milky Way is kind of the average, then we have somewhere around 20,000 billion billion stars. And then I found out, I, I went back to look at that, and I said, you know, that's got to be too big a number. So I looked it up again, and I went to some more sources, and I found out it was too small, that most scientists now think there are up to two trillion galaxies, which is ten times what I just said. So when you stop and think about that, and I know that's impossible really to think about, in this whole vast universe with that many stars in it, there is one God. One God who designed it, who created it, who knows every cubic millimeter of it, and according to Isaiah, he's got a name for each one of those stars. So that's in itself is, is mind-boggling. But then we think about how somehow this God, and I don't know that we even have the words to describe it, but somehow he limited himself, somehow he, he contained himself in the body of a human being. God became a baby, this God who made all this stuff became a baby who needed to learn how to talk and walk and you know, be changed and, and all that. God became a toddler. God became, heaven forbid, a teenager. Right? Sorry, teens, I'm always saying stuff like that. I was a teenager once and sometimes I wish I still could play baseball like that. Um, God became a man. He became a full-fledged, 100% human being. And as I said, this is obviously mind-blowing to the point that the numbers stop making sense after a while. They get meaningless because they're just unfathomable. And, and so obviously one thing this does or should do is move us to worship, right? Not just to singing pretty Christmas carols, but, but to, to flat-out, jaw-dropping, fall-on-your-face worship. You know, in the song, Oh Holy Night, I'm sure we'll sing that once or twice this season. You get to that part where it says, fall on your knees. Don't you kind of want to do that sometimes? To me, that's almost as close as we get to getting just a little bit of the flavor of what God did at Christmas, if we can really try to enter into that idea. But beyond that very appropriate response of worshiping God, how else does the incarnation make a difference to us? Why did God do this crazy-sounding thing, and what difference does it make for us? And so over the next three weeks or so, I want to explore this idea, and I want to, to start examining this first. I'm going to look at it from maybe three different angles and I want to start looking at the first angle, not necessarily by looking at like a theological argument from Romans or somewhere like that. I want to just kind of tell you a story. Uh, and it's a story that's in John chapter 11, and one that some of you are probably very familiar with. So let's turn there now. The Gospel of John chapter 11, and I'm going to start reading at verse 17. I'll give you a little background first. Jesus has some good friends who live in Bethany. There's two sisters named Martha and Mary, and they have a brother named Lazarus. Lazarus has gotten sick. This, is about, this happens a few months before Jesus dies, by the way, before he comes to Jerusalem for the last time. Bethany is basically kind of like a suburb, suburb of Jerusalem. It's nearby. That's where Mary and Martha and Lazarus live. And so they say, hey, you're, you're, the one who you love, Lazarus, is sick. So Jesus finds out, he, he, although he delays in coming down, and Jesus comes into town, but by the time he gets to town, 
Lazarus has already died. And we're going to pick it up in, in verse 17. It says this in verse 17, Now when Jesus came, when he came to Bethany, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews, these are the Jewish leaders from Jerusalem, had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she, Mary, heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? We're going to stop there. Why would you stop there? Okay, so spoiler alert, okay? In case you were wondering, Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead by the end of the chapter here. But I want to talk about the part that we already read. The Gospel of John, there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the Gospel of John, more so than the other three Gospels, always presents Jesus as being completely in control of everything that is happening. And if you think about it, that makes a lot of sense, because John, John's goal is to present Jesus really in his divinity, in his godhood. And God is always in control. God is never surprised. God is never thrown for a loop. God, God isn't like your GPS. He doesn't have to recalculate when you do something unexpected. He doesn't have to readjust to circumstances because something happened. And so Jesus, in the two dozen or so conversations, he has a lot of interviews, a lot of conversations with people all throughout the Gospel of John, but he pretty much always gives you the impression that he's in charge, that he's firmly in control of the conversation, and that he, he pretty much knows what's going on. He's kind of almost above it all in some ways. And this is true even in his death. It's in the book of John that Jesus says, no one takes my life from me. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. And even in the beginning of this chapter, chapter 11, Jesus comes off the way he always does in the rest of John. He's very composed, he's very in control, he's kind of formal in his speech. It's almost as if he's a little above everything that's happening. And so he responds to the news of Lazarus' sickness. He's with his disciples, he finds out that Lazarus is sick. And it's a sickness that's really serious. And so I know most of us at that point with a beloved friend like that, we would rush down to Bethany. What can I do to help? But Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, he purposefully delays his trip for the sake of his mission to glorify his Father. 
And then he shows off what we call his omniscience, the fact that he knows everything, by telling his disciples, look, you don't know this, but Lazarus is already dead, because by that time he was. And then when he gets down to Bethany to see Lazarus' sisters, it really starts out the same way. First, Martha comes running up to Jesus even before he gets to the village, and you would expect this from Martha. Because of the two sisters, Martha and Mary, Martha's the doer. She's the active one. She's the type A. She's the more aggressive personality. You may remember these two make an appearance in the Gospel of Luke. And in the Gospel of Luke, uh, there's a time when Martha's running around trying to get supper ready for everybody, and Mary's just sitting at Jesus' feet listening to him teach. These are the same two ladies. And just as in Luke, Martha comes at Jesus kind of boldly. And there's maybe even a slight hint of accusation in what she says here to Jesus, but at the same time, she expresses her faith in him. If I had to paraphrase what Martha was saying to Jesus when she confronts him at the entrance to the village, it would be something like this. Jesus, if you had just gotten here four days earlier, my brother wouldn't have died. And you know, I'm, 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 I'm sure you have your reasons for not being here, but I just want you to know that even though I don't understand any of this, it hasn't caused me to lose my faith in you. Basically what Martha says to Jesus. You can almost hear the the battle that is going on inside Martha's heart as her faith and her doubt are colliding and kind of going head to head. And she's trying to process all this suffering which Jesus could have avoided. And how could Jesus possibly let this happen to her brother and to her given their relationship with Jesus? And Jesus answers Martha in a very encouraging and yet kind of a theological way, right? He hits her with a bunch of powerful truth, and we've seen him doing this over and over again with people in the Gospel of John. Other times he says, I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the light of the world. And here he comes out with one of these famous declarations. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And he gives Martha one more chance to express her faith in him. And he asks, he says, do you believe this? And she says, yes. And she does confess her faith, and then she goes and she gets her sister Mary, who she evidently did not tell that Jesus was there. And so Mary comes out to see Jesus too, but the interview that Jesus has with Mary is so much different than the interview that he has with Martha, which is kind of odd because it starts out the same way. Mary says pretty much the exact same words Martha said. She says, hey, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But then Mary can't go any farther. She just breaks down and becomes a puddle at Jesus' feet. And she just sits there and sobs. And here is one of the most shocking moments in the New Testament, and especially because it's in the Gospel of John. Because at this point, something happens inside Jesus. It doesn't come out all that clearly in the English translation, but, but Jesus stops teaching, he stops theologizing. In fact, for a while here, he stops talking at all. And this Jesus, the one who's pretty much in control of everything all the time, he pretty much loses it. Did you notice that? The Greek words, he, he, is, he is utterly overcome with emotion. The translation here, it's hard, but in describing his being deeply moved and troubled in spirit, what the words basically indicate is that Jesus snorts like a horse. Have you ever made a sound like that when you're really upset? You probably have, right? When you're, I mean, when you're really upset. You might make some sounds you, you don't even recognize in yourself. What Jesus is experiencing here is a mixture of anger and grief and frustration, and he gives full vent to it here. He just lets it go, probably shocking and even scaring his disciples when they see this emotional display. And then all he can bring himself to say is, hey, where's the body? And so they bring Jesus to the tomb, and then once again he breaks down and he weeps. Now, 
hit the pause button right here, right? Put yourself in the sandals of these people that are around Jesus, and here, here you are, right there in, in John 11, about 35, 36, 37. Just stop time for a minute. At this moment, Lazarus's body is lying cold in the tomb. Martha is anxiously pacing around, battling doubt and fear. Mary is weeping at Jesus' feet. The friends who have come are crying along with them. The disciples are hanging around, probably not knowing what to say. And Jesus himself is absolutely beside himself with emotion. At this moment, I I just want to make three observations. First of all, looking at the scene, looking at the scene, how would you assume the story is going to end? You'd probably think, this is it, right? It's over. This is the end. Because nobody seems to have any hope. And so what you think is, you know what? This is just one more heartbroken family forced to say goodbye to a precious loved one way too early. It happens every day. And it's happened to some of you. And I think this is important because I don't know anybody in this room who has seen a brother come back from the dead after four days in the tomb. If it happened, I missed it. Right? For most of us who lose a loved one, this is where the story seems to end. Yes, I understand, yes, with, with hope in the afterlife and for eternal life because of Christ's sacrificial death and, and, and he has saved us. I, I, I know, I get that. But in this present life, in this present life on the earth, nothing to look forward to but remembering and mourning and eventually trying to come to some kind of closure and healing and then moving on with a sense of great loss. And this is not just true of death, even though it's the most extreme example of this. There are other times in life when we don't see immediate answers to our prayers, right? When we don't, we don't get an immediate answer to that prayer for wisdom and decision-making, or we don't get the immediate relief from our pain. And so it's important for us to know, it's important for us to stop right here at verse 37. Those of us who are, are not always going to receive the immediate resurrection miracle or the immediate answer to prayer, you know, to think, where is Jesus at this moment? What is he doing? Where is he? Because if you think about it, in this story, which is a true story, Jesus knows, he knows that he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead in about five minutes. Now, Think just for a minute what you would do if you had that kind of inside information and how you would act. I mean, have you ever been the bearer of really good news? Like really good news. Have you ever been able to walk into a room full of people and just cheer them up with some really good news that they didn't know about and they were all upset? Have you ever perhaps, you know, let's say that you have a spouse or, or, a, or one of your kids and they, they, their heart is really set on the job and they had an interview for the job, but the interview didn't go that well, and, and they, they really, really wanted this job, and now they're moping around because they know they blew it, and the interview went so badly, they're never going to get the job. But you find out, somehow, you have a friend somewhere, and you talk to somebody, you find out that, that they got the job, and that the phone's about to ring to offer them the job. How are you feeling at that very moment? Isn't it an awesome feeling of anticipation? Isn't there a song running through your head at that moment that goes like this? I know something you don't know, Right? You almost sing it. Isn't it hard not to crack a smile? Isn't that where you'd think Jesus would be at this moment? Think about it. He knows what he's going to do, but amazingly, he does not allow himself to go there. No, instead, he enters into this moment completely. 
He allows himself to feel the loss of a good friend, the anger at sin and death, even the hopelessness and the futility and all the finality that the people around him are experiencing right now. Jesus feels the full devastation of tragically losing a loved one. He doesn't short-circuit the experience. He goes through it. And so even when you don't receive the quick healing or the immediate answer to prayer, and even when you might have that empty feeling in the pit of your stomach from losing someone that you love, yeah, for even more than four days, Jesus will still be there. He is in that moment with you. He goes there. Which brings me to my second observation, which is maybe just a continuation of the first one, but isn't it true that when you're angry, or when you're really upset, or when you're grieving, or when you're heartbroken, Sometimes what you need more than anything else is just for someone else to be angry or grieving or heartbroken with you, right? So that you won't feel alone, so that these, these very intense and uncomfortable feelings you have will be validated so you'll know that they're okay. And if you have a really good friend, isn't that something that the person will do, a really good friend? So if you get upset, they're gonna be angry right along with you, right? If you're hurting, they're gonna cry with you. If you're happy, they're gonna rejoice with you and say, woo right? That's, that's part of what a good friend does. They feel right along with you on your behalf. I think it's, it's really important for a lot of us to know this about Jesus when we come to him in prayer. When we come to him in prayer. I know you all have doubts sometimes. I do too. When you have doubts and fears, do you take them to Jesus? Do you just open them up before him? Are, are, and, and are you willing to be bold with him like Martha was? not hold anything back, even to maybe kind of process your doubts in his presence. And when you do that, do you realize that Jesus is not judging you for how you feel, but that he is entering into your pain and your frustration with you? At the times in your life when you're so messed up that you can't even get words out and you fall down in a puddle like Mary did, when this happens, when you think about Jesus, do you imagine Jesus kind of far away on some exalted throne somewhere? Or do you look up and see his tears of compassion? Because he really is feeling with you and for you. He knows that for you, yes, it might be longer than just four days of pain, but he is willing to enter in there and he is willing to stay with you there as long as you need him to. You see, he actually knows what it feels like. Jesus actually knows what it feels like because he's been there. He really has. And just like he did with Mary and Martha, Jesus knows. You know, he knows something you don't know. He knows that one day, if you are his child, your pain and your loss will be more than made up for by what is coming to you, the joy and the glory that is coming to you for all eternity. Amen. He knows it's better. But he also knows that as powerful as that promise is, that right now you need something really more than that because for a time what you need is someone weeping right alongside of you or maybe getting angry alongside of you or someone who truly understands what you're going through to go through it with you. And you know what? He will give you that too. Amen. He will give you that too. Now I just want to make one more observation about this story. And this one's a little different and it's going to get into some theology. It has to do with the character of God. Theologians will, will, will speak sometimes of something they call the impassibility of God. The impassibility of God. The idea, and te technically the word impassable means that you're not able to, to suffer 
or, or, or to feel pain or to be hurt. And the idea behind this doctrine is that because God is all-powerful, because God is all-knowing and sovereign over everything, that he is impassable. But let me explain to you what I think that means because it's real, it can be dangerous thinking about this and very difficult to process. Here, here's what I believe this means and my, my understanding of it is that, that God, because he is sovereign over everything, he experiences reality in a slightly different, but actually a very different way than we do because strictly speaking, things don't happen to God. Think about it that way. Things don't happen to God. He's the one who makes things happen, not the person who things happen to. So things don't happen to God the same way they happen to us because as I mentioned before, it's impossible to surprise God. It's impossible to shock God. It's impossible to overwhelm God in any way because after all, he's what? He's God. It's not like he doesn't see it coming. But, and here's where we go wrong, it is a great error to say that because God might be in some sense impassable, that God is not emotional. Because God is emotional. Now, when we think of our emotions, okay, it is true that our emotions, when they come at us, they seem like something that happens to us, right? Not something that we put together or that we create or that we cause because emotions just kind of happen to us. And we realize that nothing really happens to God in a sense. And so God, being who he is, does not experience his emotions in exactly the same way that we do. But the Bible assures us many, many times that God is a deeply emotional being, probably more emotional than us. And this is probably something we don't appreciate enough about God. God, even though he is all-knowing and all-powerful, in a sense, he allows himself to be moved and to feel deeply. And so, just some examples. In the Garden of Eden, God can cry out, Adam, Adam, where are you? Even though he knows exactly where Adam is. And yet, at, the t- at that time, he can feel all the panic of a parent whose child has just gone missing. God can look down from heaven. He can see his enslaved people being brutalized by Pharaoh, knowing that he's going to rescue them, but still have compassion on them. God can feel violently jealous as a husband for an unfaithful wife when his people betray him and serve other gods. And yet at the same time, in the book of Hosea, he can speak like this. How can I give you up? How can I hand you over, O Israel? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. You know, sometimes when we get really emotional, it's easy for us to fall into major sin, right? Because we can go off the rails. We can fly into a rage, we can make really, really bad decisions, right, when we're really emotional. Don't make really big decisions when you're really emotional. And yet sometimes what we do is we take these emotions that we have and we project them back onto God and we think that because God is emotional, that means he must be erratic and unstable like we are. But he's not. Because God can be emotional and yet be without sin. He can be emotional without reacting in some imperfect fleshly way like we often do. And so when it comes to emotions, God is not just like us. But in a way, we are like him. Let me explain that because I'm not just using tricky language. Where do you think we got our emotions from? Yeah, right? We're part of God's image in us, right? Where else would we have gotten them? Our emotions are, are really just a messed up and weaker version of his perfect emotions. Okay, we're going to talk about this more in January because I'm going to do a whole short series with you about dealing with your emotions in a godly way. We'll talk about some of the big ones like grief and fear and anger and things like that. But, but for now, I want you to think about Jesus. I want you to think about Jesus, God in human flesh, 
the one who came to really be one of us. And when you look at Jesus in this passage here at the death of Lazarus, what you see is perfect, uncorrupted, and godly human emotion. In other words, this is, this is emotions the way they were meant to be experienced. Jesus, as God, can be emotional without being sinful. But as a man, as a man, Jesus will do something that he couldn't do as God. Let me say that again because it sounds weird. As a man, there's something Jesus could do that he couldn't do as God, and that is Jesus can have things happen to him. Jesus will be surprised, even amazed by the faith of a centurion. He will respond in righteous anger. He will react when his father's house, the temple, is invaded by these people that are just trying to make a buck. Jesus will experience fear and anxiety and symptoms of what we now call PTSD to the point of sweating great drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before his death. And here, standing at the entrance of the tomb of a good friend and watching what the sting of death does to this man's helpless sisters, Jesus will break down and he will weep. And then a few months later, as he would hang in great agony on a cross, Jesus would feel not only physical pain, but he would feel the betrayal of his friends and even the utter loneliness and abandonment of being rejected for a time even by his heavenly Father. Brothers and sisters, this is your God. This is how far he was willing to go in order to show himself to you. But Jesus did more than that. I was reading an article this week that said it kind of like this. It said, ultimately, we don't want a doctor who can just lay beside us on the bed and feel our pain. I mean, it's great to have a doctor who understands, right? We want a doctor like that with a good bedside manner who sympathizes with us, but we also want one who knows what, how to fix the problem. Let's go ahead and read the rest of the passage, shall we? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, verse 38, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha the sister of the dead man said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. In Jesus Christ, God who became man, we have a friend, a friend who can walk with us through the valley of the shadow of death and who feels the impact of it right alongside of us. But we also have a Savior who went toe-to-toe with death and defeated it forever for all of us who place our trust in him. We will talk more next week about how he accomplished that and why, in order to do it, he needed to be a human like us. Let's pray.